The Holy Gospel according to Matthew in the first chapter. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. On account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotam, and Jotam the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salatiel, and Salatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born and who is called the Messiah. And so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. I'm pretty sure Pastor Molly saw that Gospel lesson and said, yep, I'm off. But let's pray. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and our minds be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We all come from stories, from generations of them. When I was in sixth grade, our teacher assigned a genealogy project. This was long before Ancestry.com or even the Mormon database was online and searchable that way. And this meant that we had to ask our parents and our grandparents. We had to dig into the past. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents, and beyond. That great crazy uncle or that crazy great uncle who somehow put two front ends of cars together to drive just because he thought it would be fun. The second cousin who was killed in a freak accident. All of the stories, the good ones, the bad ones, the heroes and the scoundrels. It matters who we talk about and what and who we don't talk about too, like Bruno Alla and Kanto, or maybe miscarriages or addictions or incarcerations or any numbers of traumas. And while genealogies can feel like a boring interlude, they serve a greater purpose. They give us the background, the glory and the shame that are behind every person, even Jesus. And in the genealogy that I just read, five women are named. 
Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who Matthew doesn't directly name, but instead calls her the wife of Uriah, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And each of these women has a story, one that might seem better suited for a Netflix or HBO series than for the bloodline of the Messiah. But against all expectations, here they are, and for a culture that traces a lineage mostly, almost exclusively through men, this is significant. Here at the very start of the Gospels, at the very start of the New Testament, Matthew turns things upside down. He declares, heads up, people, the Messiah isn't what you were expecting. This Messiah is one who comes for all, for the poor, the sinful, the abandoned and rejected, the alien, the Gentile, and the Jew. Yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the son of David. Yes, he's royalty. But yes, he's also the son of the least, the savior of all. That's a message of hope for the majority of the world. Most of us wouldn't qualify if Jesus came only for the peer, for those with pristine backgrounds and life stories. These five women and their messy stories give us hope. And as we enter Advent, the message of these five women is important on another level, too, to remind us that our hope has always been and will always be in Christ. Life is as full of the unexpected now as it was in those biblical times. Both good and bad times color our lives. But our hope lies far beyond any single event or moment and instead finds its fullness in a single place, in Christ. And so today, I invite you to listen to the stories of these five women. Tamar is mentioned first. Her story is found in Genesis 38, and it's not an easy one. In our day and age, it's hard to understand. She's the daughter-in-law of Judah, married in turn to his two oldest sons. Both of them are bad men who die under God's judgment. And Judah then promises to give her to his youngest son when that son comes of age. And he sends her off hoping that she will just go away because he believes her to be bad luck. He has no intention of keeping his promise and Tamar finds out. And she is not naive and so she forms a plan After her father-in-law's wife dies, Tamar has an opportunity to encounter him. She puts on a veil to disguise herself and sits beside the road where he will be passing. And Judah sees her and assumes she's a prostitute but does not recognize her as Tamar. Now it's helpful to understand that they lived in a world where women have almost no way to make a living on their own outside of marriage and bearing children. And so prostitution was one of the few vocations that were, was available. And so Judah approaches her for sex. And Tamar requires him to leave his seal and staff with her as a pledge for payment. The payment will be a goat delivered later, but Tamar doesn't care about the goat. She wants the personal items that identify Judah. And they have sex, and she gets pregnant. And soon Judah is given the news that his unmarried daughter-in-law is pregnant, and he demands that she be brought out and burned for her sin. 
And she sends a messenger to him along with the staff and seal. I am pregnant by the man who owns these things. Identify them, please. Who is the owner of the seal and staff? Judah acknowledges them and says, She's more in the right than I, since I would not give her to my youngest son, Shalah. And Tamar carries the pregnancy to term and delivers twins, Perez and Sarah. Tamar's situation is complex and messy. She's someone who stands outside of the community of the Israelites, outside of the community of promise, because she is a Canaanite. Yet she's hugely important for the future of generations to come, and this ancient community heritage is important. As distasteful as this story may be to us, Tamar is faithful to do everything she can to carry on her husband's name, and unknowingly her actions contribute in a direct way to the birth of the Messiah. For her son Perez not only continues the family name, but is part of the line from which Jesus is descended. It is a shocking story. And next up is Rahab. And her story is found in Joshua in the second chapter, where it tells us that she is also a Canaanite and she is also a prostitute. Remember again that prostitution is one of the few vocations available to women, and Rahab is most likely in this profession to provide for her family. And she's an observant and perceptive person. She recognizes what the God of the Israelites has done for them. And so she declares her allegiance to and confidence in the God of Israel. She shelters the spies that Joshua sends to Jericho, protecting them, hiding them, and guiding them to safety. And in return, she asks that she and her family be spared. She's instructed to hang a scarlet cord out of the window of her house as a signal to the advancing army, which is there to overthrow Jericho. And Rahab and her family are rescued. And Rahab later marries an Israelite named Solomon, and they become the parents of Boaz. And Boaz then grows up to marry Ruth, who is the next woman named in Jesus' genealogy. And her story is found in the book of Ruth. Ruth is an admirable character, even though she is from an ethnic group that is despised and rejected by the Israelites. She's a Moabite, and not a part of the bloodline of the nation of Israel. Now, I want to pause for just a moment, because these first three women named in Jesus' genealogy, none of them, are from a Jewish ancestry or background. The reign of Jesus the Messiah is highly inclusive. That those who may be rejected and even despised are welcome, this is yet another sign of hope. Now Ruth is admired for her faithfulness, and through her, Naomi, her mother-in-law, receives restoration, and the family and community are also enriched. Her story goes like this. Ruth marries into a Jewish family, and subsequently, through the deaths of her father-in-law, husband, and brother-in-law, she is left with nothing. She, her mother-in-law, and sister-in-law are utterly impoverished. They are homeless and poor. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, decides that her best bet is to return to Bethlehem, where she came from, and for Ruth to return to her, her own people. And Ruth has none of it 
Despite Naomi's pleas that she go back to her own people, Ruth clings to Naomi and declares her loyalty to her and to the Israelite God, Yahweh. And once they arrive in Bethlehem, things don't look very good. And yet even so, Ruth is determined to try to make the best of it. And so they connect with a distant relative of Naomi, Boaz. And Ruth is allowed to follow behind the harvesters in his field, picking up the gleanings. And Boaz takes note of all that Ruth does to care for Naomi. His admiration grows over time. And in due course, she and Boaz marry, thereby securing her future and that of Naomi's. And they have a son, Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, King David. Ruth is a favorite figure in Scripture because of her steadfast faithfulness, her kindness, her devotion to Naomi, her willingness to make things work. And most of all, her faith in the God of Israel, even though she is part of an excluded race. She's recognized as a woman of God and a woman of character. Next in the genealogy is Bathsheba. She's unnamed by Matthew. She's just called the wife of Uriah. Uriah the Hittite was one of King David's trusted military advisors. One day, while most of the military is away, David is on his rooftop, and he spies Bathsheba bathing, and he uses his cloud as a king to call for her, and he commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant, and David conspires to have her husband placed in a precarious position in battle, so he is killed. After a period of mourning, David calls for her and marries her. The baby they have together dies, but she bears David another son, Solomon, who will eventually become king, rebuild the temple, and is renowned for his wisdom. Scripture doesn't tell us many details on Bathsheba and David's relationship and its messiness, but it does tell us that David becomes reconciled with God and is known as a man after God's own heart. His name is possibly the most significant one in Jesus' genealogy. Yet, I wonder if we could see the inclusion of Bathsheba as a reminder not to place David on too high of a pedestal. And I also wonder if her presence may remind us of the grace of the coming Messiah, who redeems people caught in relationships of unequal power, caught in improper relationships, who restores them to the true love and freedom offered by God. And finally, the last woman named in the genealogy is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary's place is uncontested, even in a culture prone to contest it. She's the one who gives birth by the power of the Holy Spirit to the Son of God made flesh. She is descended from the line of David. Mary's sense of her place in history is clear, and she rejoices in this. We hear this in her Magnificat found in Luke's Gospel. But even so, the circumstances of Mary's pregnancy while engaged but not married make her the undeniable and unlikely name-bearer for the Messiah. The women of Jesus' genealogy are real women with complex and sometimes messy lives. Their inclusion in Jesus' genealogy is significant, and it is hopeful. These women paved the way for the Messiah, for Jesus, not so that he could come from a pristine bloodline with a perfect ancestry, 
but as a reminder that he comes into the world for all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. He comes from the same world that he's not above and beyond us. He comes for the poor, the sinful, the abandoned, the rejected, the alien, the Gentile, and the Jew, the sick, the frightened. Jesus comes for all of us. And in this, there is hope for all people. Christ is with and can be found in all things, in all circumstances. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.